Hope everyone is well. Hello, Marlene. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hello, Cindy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Like I said, uh, Karen is, uh, she's here. I was just talking to her, but I suggested she change her name because uh, it was so long. And uh, so hopefully she'll be joining us again. Let's see. Uh, much better. Okay, if we could just adjust the, uh, turn, turn to the, oh, there you go. Perfect. All right. What's up, Sarge? Hey, uh, Sean, <laughs> much better. Before you had it all off the screen here, we couldn't see what you're writing, what you're writing there. So, so thanks so much. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much. So we got a few viewers already. So I want to welcome everyone to the show. We got Tiffany, Teresa, Cindy, Marlene, and Sean or Awo. He told me the name. Awo. I'm just going to say Sean. Anyway. So uh, thank you so much for everyone for tuning in. Thank you so much to uh detective karen cerruti for joining us on the podcast i really really appreciate it thank you so much you're welcome um and so we were talking before and i'm going to start this off hey sibonay thanks for joining in um so we were talking before uh offline here and i just want to say this before when i was a sergeant and uh, detective cerruti was on her way out she, she was teaching a class I think it was a sexual assault class or something like that about how to or actually it was how not to interview little kids right Basically, as a basically as a patrol officer, keep, get you get there, keep your mouth shut, and let the detectives do everything before you mess up the crime scene and all that kind of stuff. So she's she's doing this class and she's telling us about how she went back to school and it was it was kind of impressed impressed and impressed upon me the need to go back to school. So I was telling her that before I never told her told her that. So I want to put that out there that uh, before us is Detective Karen Rudy who uh, encouraged me to go back to school and I really really appreciate that. You never know the impact that you're making on other people. Um, so I just want to be, uh, let you know that, give you your props there. So, Thank you. Thank you. It, it's very encouraging to know. I have people that tell me that every so often. And it, it's funny because it's never somebody like from a year ago. It's always somebody from years and years ago that I didn't even know how I impacted the person's life. And it's always been very positive. Um, you know, which is surprising because in this profession, you think you're going to get get some flack, but um, it's always yeah, been yeah. very positive. And it makes me just think that I, I'm doing the right thing. I mean, I do the right thing for me because it makes me feel good, but it makes me know that I'm doing the right thing for others and it's helping others out as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's really important. You really don't know. And like you said, sometimes if you I think if you treat people right, you treat people fair. Uh, then, then you know, years later they'll they'll come up to you. I can remember one time uh, it was myself and uh, another retired uh, officer, uh, Karen Kirky. We were in a two man car, and uh, we had arrested these guys uh, who had uh, stolen a car. And uh, so, so, so fast forward a few months later, maybe even a couple of years later, I don't know. But um, I'm at the mall in Waterbury, and. Uh, this guy comes up to me and says, you don't remember me, do you? I'm like, oh, man, here we go. He's like, nah, listen, man, you arrested me, but you were really talked to me really nice. And he was actually working at one of the little kiosks there, so he had to turn his life around. So it's how you treat people. You know, we didn't get there and do stuff. So it's really, really important about how you treat people. And as officers, if there's any officers out there listening, you know, take it from myself and take it from Detective Saruti here, that it's how you treat people. And you don't know the positive impact that you can have upon people's life, you know, so... Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop talking now. I want you to kind of introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself and what you 
have going on and all that kind of stuff and how you're staying safe in these COVID times and all that. You're wearing your mask and stuff. Yes, yes. So <laughs> so I'm retired uh, Detective Karen Cerruti. I um, have been retired from the police department for a little over 15 years now. Um, I came on the police department very young when I was 19 years old. So I was able to retire after 20 years. Um, I retired before my birthday. My birthday's in the fall. So technically I was 38 years old when I retired um, and transitioned to um, a job with the state of Connecticut. But what I really wanted to talk a little bit about is um, I'm sure that the captain will get into it, but just kind of how I got on the job, the trials and tribulations that I had to go through to get there and then um, I'm, I'm a positive person and I always kind of try to make the best of every situation that I'm in because I figure it like this. I'm here, right? I'm here. We're all here. So instead of honestly, excuse my language, bitching and moaning all day and griping and being angry. First of all, I feel like being angry takes so much energy. My kids are young adults now, but especially back then they were young. And I, I just figured that if I was going to be you know, griping and bitching and moaning all day, every day, there would be no way that I could have the energy to, you know, be a decent wife, a decent mom, take care of my kids, take care of my house. Cause I just feel that it takes an incredible amount of energy to just be angry all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a, that's a good positive outlook. How are you making out with these uh, COVID times here? Are you going? Are you going to work, or you got to stay inside, or working from home? So we are working from home. However, being that I'm an investigator, um, I am charged with um, responding to emergencies or things that um, can't be done over the phone. So actually, the last two weeks, I've been out four or five different times. I was at court most of the day today. Um, I had to take a child into custody last Monday. Um, and then I had a very serious sexual abuse case on Friday, uh, Thursday, excuse me, Friday was considered a state holiday. So we weren't working, but I was out all day on that interviewing, doing what we call minimal facts interviews of, of these two young children, um, come to find out we're, we're sexually assaulted by the same perpetrator who's, who's a family member. Um, so I'm working with troop B and Canaan on that and spent the, my time after court, on the line with Troop B Canaan to make sure that everything was put into place to make sure that these kids are safe and, and uh, get interviewed more thoroughly. Cause now that's not my job anymore. Now that I'm not a detective to totally interview them and interview the perpetrator and stuff like that. Um, my job is just to do what they call a minimal facts interview, which is to establish that a crime has or has not been committed, who the perpetrator is, where, you know, all the good stuff, who, what, where, when, when and why, and then kind of forward the information um, over to the appropriate authorities. Um, we do wear masks. We're not going into people's homes unless we have to. We're utilizing FaceTime. And then we have what we also call Microsoft Teams that we use. Um, I'm not technologically proficient. We just went through that before, before this broadcast. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring um, it up. My, but. <laughs> it's okay. My clients are even less technologically proficient. Um, and so um, we, we mostly FaceTime, even if it's to, even if they have to borrow a neighbor's phone to FaceTime with me. I mean, it's private. I'm talking to them in their house. The neighbor has, you know, doesn't know what we talk about. Um, I don't know what they tell the neighbor, why they have to borrow their phone, but that's, that's what I've been doing. Um, we have to ask permission if we have to go into our office. 
Um, there's only so many people allowed in the office per day. You're only allowed in there so many hours. Um, you have to wear a mask in the office. Um, so like I was at my desk, I think I left at 3.30 this afternoon. Um, the cleaning crew was supposed to come and disinfect my desk so that should anybody else sit at it. I don't share a desk, but um, I know some of my coworkers in Waterbury, they share desks at, uh, at that particular office. Um, so I think I feel like we're taking all the precautions, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. OK, good, good. Uh, that's really interesting. I want to get into a lot about what you do a little bit later. So I kind of wrote some notes down. So I hopefully I won't forget because I have a tendency to get ahead of myself here. So I want to try to remember. So I want to start off with uh, you came on, as you mentioned, very young. 18 years old or, or so, 18 or 19? 18. 19. 19. 19. I took uh, the test though when I, when I actually, believe it or not, I took the test when I was 17, the written ah. test, because, <laughs> you know, Water, Waterbury has this, for people that don't know, Waterbury has this weird thing that if you're within six months of anything, it counts as that amount of time. So yeah, when yeah. I was like 17 and a half, I could take the written test because as long as I was 18, Within that six months, they allowed it. So really, honestly, I took the test when I was 17 and a half, the written test, went through all of the um, the physical agility, the polygraph, all that when I was 18, got hired, but then there was a hiring freeze. So um, by the time I got hired, I was 19. Um, but what they did is they split our class in half and there was like 20 of us in our class and then the class before us now you're gonna laugh because our police academy was 12 weeks long. So, well, well. <laughs> so the class before it's not much me, now, right? we got, we, yeah, we got hired, but we had to wait for the class before me to complete the uh, the police academy. So we had to wait for their 12 weeks to be over until we could get hired. Um, so that's kind of how that happened. So by the time while that happened, I was technically 19. But um, oh yeah, very very young. Um, funny thing about it is that I could not at the time the drinking age was 20 so I could not go to bar bar fights and stuff like that because I technically wasn't even old enough to be in the bar so people used to pimp me out all the time and they would call the platoon captain and say oh Karen Richon I went to high school with her I know she's not old enough to be in the bar what is, what is she doing in the bar so then I was nicely asked by, by the platoon captain to sit in the car Whenever <laughs> we got dispatched to a bar fight. Wow. Now that's a story right there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, Wasn't old enough to buy my bullets for my gun because you had to be 21. So my father used to have to go and buy them. Think and about I how crazy that is. Badge. Yeah, I used to show my little badge and my daddy used to say, oh, this is my daughter. She's a cop, but she's not old enough to buy her bullets to practice because... I don't know if they do it now, but back then when I was there, the quartermaster didn't give you anything. So uh, when I left, they weren't giving us anything either. Not bullets anyway. Not the <laughs> go part. So I, yeah, that's yeah. a good that's a good question. Um, so talk about uh, so you so you passed the test, and we were talking before offline. I don't know if you want to tell the stories, but you grew up in Waterbury, uh, in the dirty water, as we all affectionately call it. <laughs> uh, so yes, talk about yes. your time there, growing up, and any difficulties you had becoming. Uh, going to school there and getting pimped out or getting told on and become a yeah. police officer. <laughs> so, so, um, so I was born and raised in, in Waterbury, um, biracial. Um, my parents are both passed away now, but my mom was, I, I affectionately say white, white, blonde and green eyed. Like you wasn't mistaken her. She actually used to dye her hair black so she wouldn't be white, white in the hood. Um, 
and my father was African-American. I, I, I feel like I had a really good childhood. I mean, my parents each worked two and three jobs to make sure that we had everything, but like they never owned a house. So every time the landlord um, raised the rent, we moved. So I can tell you right now, like we lived in four houses on Walnut Street, two houses on Traverse Street, Warner Street. The people from Dirty Water know exactly where these streets are at. Yeah. Um, Fairmont, <laughs> right. everywhere. Right. So, um, you know, I went to uh, Sprague. I went to Wilby. I went to Slocum. I mean, I, I went to all these different schools. So, um, you know, the, the general... Um, stuff of growing up of, you know, oh, you don't know what you are, this and that. I always knew what I was. My parents told me what I was. I felt like I was lucky. My parents were married and I had a two-parent family, even though we were poor. Um, they always told me, you know, you're, you're half Caucasian, half African-American, and you're loved. And that's all that counts, really. Um, I have five brothers who decided that they were going to run the streets wild. So if anybody, I can't see who's on here, but if anybody knows, I just want to be, you know, open and honest and, you know, I, I don't hide anything. And, and maybe there's some guys on the job that arrested them at one point. They're all doing very well now. But back in my time, it used to be a joke where if one of my brothers robbed somebody or something like that and they didn't know their name, somehow they all knew that I was a cop, though. So they would literally call dispatch and say, it's one of the rich on boys, you know, the one that his sister be a cop. So like <laughs> it was it was like, seriously, that's how it was. So, um, you know, to people that I, I, I get very um, upset when people try to say like, oh, I don't know how it is because now I live in Torrington, you know, with my white husband in my house. No, we lived in the hood. No, I had brothers. I had the police at my house all the time. Um, the detectives were at my house a lot, even when I was in the process of coming on the job, um, you know, all of that. So I feel like whatever people want to, you know, talk about, we could talk about because I feel like I can speak on it. For your brothers who were kind of going through some stuff, uh, do you think that they were going through some stuff and trying to fit in because they were, I'm assuming they're all biracial as you are. Were they trying to fit in? Yes. And try, yeah. So what, so when I talked to my brothers, what, what they told me was that, so both of my parents were really, really hard workers. Like I said, two and three jobs. Um, and to my brothers, that kind of was stupid. They didn't understand why if they worked so hard, 12, 14, 16 hour days, why we didn't own a house, why we didn't have the best car, why, you know, why we didn't have, um, we had enough food. I don't want to say we didn't have enough food, but like the way that my kids could come and make anything they want in my house, I didn't grow up like that. I, I make a joke of my mom rationed our food. We had breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks, but we weren't allowed to like come in the pantry and just get out a bag of chips or, you know, make a steak on the stove because that food was for another meal on another day. Um, so my brothers told me straight out, listen, one of them told me one time he was robbing, I don't know what is it called now. It used to be Lowman's Chevrolet. It's Blazius now. Yeah, yeah. So at one point, one of my brothers every night was robbing um, or stealing uh, tires off the cars. And he said that no matter how expensive the car or whatever, he was getting $500 for a set of wheels. And he said, you know, I can sleep all day, get high all night, go out and rob a couple of cars and make two, $3,000 a day. He goes, and mommy and daddy are out there breaking their asses for what? 
waiting for the landlord to raise the rent so we could move again. That's what they told me. Mm. Wow. I'm, well, I'm, at least I'm glad to hear that they're doing well now. They're doing good now. They are doing, you know, we're all older. We're all in our 50s now. And I feel like they grew up and, you know, they were OGs for a while in the different jails and stuff. And I, I think they, you know, they all have kids and grandkids. And I think they learn to appreciate life. And they actually, they all, and it's funny, you know what? They all have houses now. Every one of them has a house that they own. Um, they all work. And, you know, it's all good now. Yeah, that's you know, good. That that's was that. That's another funny thing I forgot to say. So when I was a cop, I don't know if you know this, but so, right, you know, you take your weapon home. Because my brothers were all convicted felons, I could not associate with them for years. Uh, yeah. You realize that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So wow. for years, I could not associate with them. It was really like it was tough to maintain a relationship because couldn't I, I couldn't associate with them. They couldn't associate with me. Technically, they weren't supposed to be around weapons. Did they did they uh, have any resentment towards you for that, or were they angry with you at all? Or no, they weren't. Um, they they were kind of shocked and couldn't believe that I picked that as a profession. Um, but once, and then they didn't think I was going to make it through the police academy, you know. And then <laughs> all twelve weeks I, of it. I, yeah, all twelve <laughs> weeks of it. And then after that, <laughs> after that. They, uh, I think they put the word out on the street with their buddies that uh, if anybody ever messed with me, it was going to be all over, you know? Uh, well, I, I think that's actually kind of good. That's that's really good. So talk about your time on, on the department. I mean, you come on, you're, uh, I think it was you and Louise Whidbey were the only two black females I, I, when I came on. So I don't know. I can't remember anyone else. So talk about your time yeah. coming on. So when I when I took the test and came on, they um, they had what they call an A list and a B list, and white males were on the A list, and everybody else, even white females, were on the B list. And at what the year time, is this? That sound, this was nineteen. When I got hired was nineteen eighty six, but it was nineteen eighty five when I took the test. Okay. Um, and so when you think about it, that's thirty something years ago. It's not right. one hundred and thirty years ago. Right. 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 And so at the time, it horrified me because that was one of the few times in my life that I was trying to figure out, well, what do I put myself down? Could, you know, if, if I'm white, could I be on the A-list? And it seemed like no matter what I did, I was going to be a B-class a B citizen. You know what I'm saying? So I'm on the B-list. But, but now I look in retrospect that it meant that I had to compete with, you know, you, black males, Puerto Rican males, polka dotted males, whatever, because the way the city of Waterbury does it is they have a system, a numerical system. So if they need 20 patrolmen at the time, they're going to take 10 from the A list and 10 from the B list. So the way that they scored it when I came on is it was a straight numerical system. You took the written test. You took the physical agility test, and then after that, you got a score. And then if you were good enough to um, come out, you know, whatever your number was, like you got a number, say, like 53 or something. Um, if they had um, like 20 spots open, what you would hope is that people would get knocked out based on like they failed their polygraph, they failed their background, they failed their um, mental health, psychological, whatever. 
and you will move up and move up and move up. So long story short, I don't remember what my number was originally, but um, I ended up coming out in the, in the top 20 because, uh, well, really the top 10, because there were 20 in my class in the academy and 10 were from white males from the A-list. So I was one of the 10 from the B-list. And so now, like I said, in retrospect, at first I was horrified, but now I'm thinking it might be a good thing um, just to try to get a police department that is more representative of the city it serves. Because you would be guaranteed now that, I don't know necessarily if I would categorize it as, you know, A-list as white males. I don't know what could be a more like a fairer categorization, but I think that it would ensure that you get a more diverse police department. Because one of the other points that I wanted to make was that um, Detective Saunders, African-American female, is the next one after me. But that was 25 years later. Where, where's, all the, where's all the police officers of color in between there? Are you trying to tell me that for 25 years we didn't have that many? Or, I mean, you said I inspired you. So where, where are the rest of the, the police officers of color? Is it that they don't feel confident that they could take the test and, and pass? Or they're afraid of when they get there, the good old boy network, or, you know, what is it? Why, why did it take 25 years to get another black female detective? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, Mike, what's up, Mike? He didn't text me today. Mike and I have been texting almost every day. He feels like a new, my new boyfriend. Hi, Mike. <laughs> We're both straight, though. I just want to put that out there. Uh, so he says that was to help minorities, right? That The A-list and B-list. Was that to help minorities get on? Yes, that was part them? of some kind of federal thing that happened before my time where um, it was, um, I'm trying to think of it. The It was under affirmative action. Okay. And what they were saying, it was some federal lawsuit where basically um, it was determined they did some kind of study and, you know, all this federal millions of dollars and figured out that basically the police department was all white males and that they needed to diversify um, the police department. I don't know if it was only in the police department. It could have been in the fire department, too, but I, I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah. Well, but like at the time I said, I was horrified because I was like, I'm like a B class citizen. You know what I'm saying? Like, but now that I'm older, wiser, see what's going on. I'm not so upset about it. Mm. Well, I guess it worked out, but you know, I, I, I don't, I, I definitely believe that we need to get rid of stuff like that. And I'm sure that that's not still going on, you know, we just need to go out off a of strict merit and, and all that kind of stuff. As long as we level the playing field, we can all, all have a fighting chance. I think that's what we all want for today. I would assume. So I do, I do just want to make the point just in case people are wondering. So, I mean, this is not, this is true for every, every, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, Captain, but, um, so when I came on the job, just like all the other females, we all, I took the same test as the captain did. I took the same physical agility as the captain did. There's not like the girl version. I just, <laughs> I just want to put that out there. We all take the same test. You know what I'm saying? There's not like a minority version or a, or a girl version. We, we all take the, the same uh, test. So we're all equally qualified because I do remember when the A and B list first came out, a lot of the white males were complaining saying, oh, you know, 
my buddy could be number two on the list, but they have to take a minority, you know, instead of him. And that wasn't true with that. At least my experience wasn't because we all took the same test and it was a numerical system. So if your buddy didn't, wasn't, didn't, you know, come out good enough, then he wasn't getting hired, but it wasn't because they had to take a minority. Mm, yeah, that's, now I'm curious about that. I'm probably going to look into that because if we're all taking the same test, physical, written, and all that kind of stuff, then why separate them into A and B list? Just to probably to make to make sure. But that, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. That, that that's, I guess they it, do. It, they it is. Do. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it makes you it makes you really think. Like, is it a good thing or isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it can't. It can't. But you don't really know what to say. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I I could see how. Uh, and Sean and I talked about this before. Uh, Sean Robinson and I talked about this before, where uh, you know somebody told him one time that he, you know, he he was taking somebody else's spot or something like that because yes. you know, and that I think that that breeds that kind of resentment. Is it, it's and hopefully they got rid of that kind of stuff and it just goes straight on to uh, merit in in all that kind of stuff and your ability to take the test and all that. So right. So hopefully. Uh, so, uh, so if you guys got questions, uh, shoot them, shoot them to me and we'll, we'll get you your questions here. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. see my friend Donata. Hi, Donata. <laughs> uh, so, Donata so let's talk was, about, um, she, she, I don't know what her current position is. She was, uh, um, she was an investigator with the state of Connecticut when I was a detective in a sex crimes unit. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about your time in the in the police department. So you move up to the ranks. You're one of the you are the first female detective. You told a story on Facebook the other day about your I think it was on Facebook. Did you tell it to me yes. or on Facebook that you were going to do it? They were going to do a raid or something like that, and you you grabbed your coat and you're like, "Where are you going?" Was that to me? Oh or yes. That... <laughs> okay. All right. So yes. So so um, so once I get on the police department, I was on the police department for um, like nine years. And, um, you know, I don't want to take all the credit for it because it just wasn't me. It was a whole bunch of us. Um, and um, I'm sorry if I offend anybody, Mike McKenna, anybody out there I know is, is listening. But like, so Waterbury was known as the good old boy, the good old white Irish boy network, right? So if you were a white male Irish, you were in no matter what. And so I'm on the job and I, I have aspirations of becoming a detective but it was an appointed position. So I'm thinking, well, how can I ever get there? I don't know anybody. I'm not related to anybody. I'm not having an affair with anybody. Like, how can I get up to the detective bureau, you know? And um, long story short, it ended up, we fought for it. It ended up being a tested position. My class was the first class to take the test. Um, and so um, they hired a whole bunch of us. I came out, I got hired. So now I'm a detective, but I'm hired. So I can't, they, it, unlike being appointed, they can't, you know, somebody, so-and-so can't be mad and say, okay, you're booted back down to patrol, you know, whatever. I'm like, got the gold shield. I'm a detective. And I walk into <laughs> the criminal investigations bureau and I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to sit and set up my desk and all that. And, I, you know, I'm very respectful. I'm not like, I'm here, like, you know, not like that. And uh, all the boys are... Uh, gearing up for a raid and I grab my bulletproof vest and I'm like, we're, you know, to the captain of the detective bureau, like, like what car do you want me to go in? You know, all the guys jump in like one car or two vans or whatever it was. 
And he says, where do you think you're going, honey? You can't go play with the boys. And I said, wait, wait a minute. Yes, I can. I said, maybe you forgot, but we took a test. I'm here legit. Like, I'm a detective. <laughs> I, I can go play with the boys. And he was like, oh, I guess you can. So you will. And so he let me go out. Okay. Well, that was nice. That was nice. He did fight yeah. that, you know, make, yeah. make you would make you grab coffees or something silly like that. You know? Well, that, you know, what's, you know, you know, what's funny too, Captain, uh, anybody that knows me knows I don't drink coffee to this day. I refused. You know why? Cause I, I, cause it's the God's honest truth. I'm, I don't like to lie. I honestly couldn't make a cup of coffee to save my life. I don't know how to do it. I made sure I never knew. So nobody could ever say, Hey honey, go make me a cup of coffee. No. Now that's funny. That's funny. Did you catch any slack about being the first female detective? Was there any uh, stuff on the bathroom walls? Or did you hear anything in the hallways or, or whatever? No. Again, it was a very, except for that little story with running out with the boys, it was a very positive experience for me because, um, like, I, like we were talking about before the podcast, um, there's a lot of kids, uh, women, domestic violence victim and kids that get sexually abused, even men and boys, too. And, um, you know, these big, strong detectives do not feel comfortable talking to these people. They'll talk to the perps all day, but they don't want to talk to these people and find out what's going on. So when I came up here, up there, all of a sudden, I'm the go to person. You know, oh, you could interview this girl. You could interview this girl, this this lady. You could interview this little boy. You know, all these. So long story short is I had to ask the powers that be, you know, I, I don't have any experience because, you know, in Waterbury, uh, patrolmen don't normally like conduct investigations and interview people and take statements like you do when you're in the detective bureau. So I asked them to train me and they were more than happy. I wasn't a hostage when I went waiting. They were more than happy to send me to every class that I asked for to learn how to interview people, interrogate perpetrators, talk to kids, all of that. And um, then when I became, well, I was pregnant with my first son, Eric, when I actually got my gold shield. Um, so then they said, well, you could have a schedule Monday through Friday, weekends and holidays off from eight to four. And you could be in our sex crimes unit. And I thought, well, <laughs> I'm going to be a new mom. This is awesome. And I said, well, <laughs> does anybody else want this job? And everybody just laughed and went, well, you can interview those people all day, every day. We don't want that job. So I, like I said, I, I took every opportunity. I took everything that I was presented with as an opportunity. We started to talk about this before. You talked about... Um being up there and so let's let's talk about the importance of, of diversity um uh, i think when i came on there was like 25 black cops or something like that i think the, roughly the same amount of hispanic cops so what's your thoughts about the importance of diversity uh, obviously we need more into detective bureau uh, on specialized teams but what, what, what's your thoughts about that how many how many cops does waterbury have now because when i was there it was like 375 yeah, yeah. I think they're up to like right around 300. I think Tiffany's here. She could probably answer that. It was 300. And I think they're doing another class at the end of the year. That's the latest I heard. So if Tiffany's still here, she might be able to answer that. Um, but I want, I'm going to say it was 300. That's when I left. It was, so you roughly got about what, like 50 uh, color there? Roughly, yeah. And Maybe. by it would probably be half and half. Half, you know, Puerto yeah. Rican or Latin and half black. You know, so... so. 
Um, I, I think we should have more and and what bothers me and maybe some of the people that are watching could send us some answers. Why don't, and I'm not talking about right now with the current climate of things, but you know, you got to realize I retired 15 years ago. The captain is talking about, you know, even a couple of years ago before all this started, why don't more people of color apply to the police department? Why? It's a great opportunity. It's a good paying job. You're probably never, ever going to get laid off. There's, there's no inequity in that women get paid the same as men. Um, they pay full boat for your education. Well, it's 75% now for us. But. Oh, oh, excuse me. When <laughs> I was, was there, it was full boat. Yeah, yeah. That's why I said, you know, I got to go back because <laughs> they're paying. <laughs> and, and I didn't go back. I didn't go back for another couple of years. But but anyway, so they paid 75%. That was the next contract there, which was. Okay. But you're right. They do pay. They have some kind of educational reimbursement. People taking out student loans. You're absolutely right. Why? Why are people not doing that? Taking advantage of these opportunities. You're right. You're right. Right. Because right. I know, like me, my parents couldn't afford to send me to college. Maybe I would have afforded it myself as an adult, but probably not. I think I went because it was like a carrot being dangled in front of me. Like, hey, you can go to school for free. All you have to do is get a B average in every class. I was like, easy breezy. Like, I'll go. And you're going to pay me to go. So not only did they pay for my classes, but then you got an educational bonus in your Christmas bonus check every year. Yeah. yeah. They probably don't do that anymore. Uh, they did when but I when left. I was there, so, uh, yeah, when I was, I was there, they did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So um, what's your thoughts? You retired some time ago, as you mentioned. What are your thoughts on what's going on today? Uh, we, you know, coming from Waterbury, everybody in here probably knows that they cut the head off of Christopher Columbus, the statue that was on Grand Street there. What's your thoughts yes. about what's going on today? Uh, take us, take us from, uh, you know, George Floyd, all these other incidents that you tuned in for and yes. uh, the protest and all that kind of stuff. What's your thoughts about what's going on? So my thoughts are, I mean, every cop that I know and have talked to is disgusted by the whole George Floyd thing. Um, it doesn't make sense to us. We all know that the other cops that were there, like their job was to pull the cop off of George Floyd. Like, what is the purpose of it? Um, you know, he was controlled. There were other cops already um, holding him down. He was handcuffed. We all know that the proper protocol is to sit him up on his butt. Um, so I do not, you know, I do not understand that. However, I do understand that that cop was the training officer and all the other, I think there were three other cops there, only had a week on a job. But then I also understand that the, the cop that was the training officer had quite a few disciplinary actions in his jacket. So I have lots of questions like, is the police department there that bad that they think that this officer with all these violations would be a good training officer or do they not have any other suitable training officers? And then what training is, are those guys getting where they're standing there watching this and they can't think for themselves. And I know, you know, captain, we all right. All the cops in here. know. It's very difficult to go against a, fe a, a fellow officer. However, I've been there. I'm sure you've been there, Captain. Um, Tiff, if she's still here, Mike McKenna, we've all been there where we get there 
or we're there, things get out of hand and we pull the other officer off and we say, you know what? It's enough right now. It's enough. Yeah. So I don't, there's all those things kind of running through my mind. Like, how did all this happen? How did this guy get to become a training officer? Why did the other officers just stand there and do nothing? What kind of training did they get where they think it's okay? How many guys do you think it, it takes to control the guy? You know, so there's all of that. Um, I understand the protests. I mean, the protests have been going on since um, since the beginning of time. And I understand that people get upset and they protest. I get it. I know this isn't a popular opinion, but I think at this point, the protests aren't, aren't doing that good. I think that we as people of color know, we've always known throughout time, we know, right? We know. I, I think that the point of the protests are supposed to be to let everybody else know that doesn't know about the systematic racism and, and, and you know, inherent bias and all that. But I, I ponder over, okay, cutting the head off of Christopher Columbus, getting into fights, you know, at these rallies that are supposed to be peaceful. How does that progress the movement forward because I know what I'm doing as a retired detective and I know what I'm doing as a um, investigator for the state of Connecticut I'm in meetings with program directors and area directors and people at our central office in Hartford that make decisions about what happens to our families of color that come into the system which we all know are disproportionately coming into the system um, so that's what I'm doing. Um, and I, you know, I don't a hundred percent agree with silence is violence, uh, because, because I'm not out there, you know, taking the head off of Christopher Columbus, I'm doing stuff in the background where I think that it counts, where, where it can help other children, other families, things like that. When I was in the sex crimes unit as a detective, many, many adult men came to me and gave statements and shook my hand and walked out and hugged me and said, when you called me and told me to come into the detective bureau to talk to you about so-and-so and this incident or that incident, I just knew I wasn't walking out of there. I thought I'd be in a cell. And I always, this is something I promised myself since I was a kid that I would find out good, bad or ugly what the truth is. And if you didn't do it, you're walking out of the police station. I don't care what color you are. I don't care what the lady said. Like, it's that's just me as a person. In my gut, that's what I feel. And that's what I feel about, like, these protests and stuff. I don't feel that those help. I feel that the first week or two, okay, we got everybody's attention, we know. But now it's time to start requesting, you know, meetings with the mayors of your cities and the police departments and the chiefs of police. And, you know, you want to defund the police and you want police to have different training and all this. Well, beheading Christopher Columbus ain't getting that done. It's not. Yeah. I'm worried about the same thing, that, that the message is getting lost and getting, you know, we're, we're painting on, on, on side streets and sidewalk Black Lives Matter and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, I, I don't want the message to be lost, right? And getting caught I up don't in, this, either. In, in this nonsense, And that's right? what hurts me is the, yeah. the violence that I see. And everybody's looking at them going, oh, that's Black Lives Matter. That's Black Lives Matter. And But it's not. Those are it's like, not. I don't know if they're yeah. Antifa people or, yeah. or what yeah. they are. But that's not what we're trying to do. That's not what we're trying yeah. to say. 
Well, I absolutely believe that there are people out there hijacking the situation. I definitely believe that. It, this is not all yes, Black Lives do Matter too. doing that, cutting the head off Christopher Columbus and in in Baltimore they they toppled it and threw it in the ocean or whatever they did there, you know. So so that just takes away from 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 the legitimacy of the argument and what you want we want to see. And I certainly agree with you. Now is the time to talk to the mayors and the politicians and the in the city uh, uh, and the police uh, officials and all that in order to get some stuff done. Uh, I, I definitely agree with that. And I, you, your point was so well taken to, in my eyes. We, I know we talked about this before, but we talked about uh, uh, the problems that were going on in Minneapolis there, that, that police department there, who was a chief of color. And and like you said, this guy was an 18 or 19 year veteran and he's leading other people with 18 complaints or something like that. How did, there's no way, there's no way you would have been a, an FTO in Waterbury right. doing that. What you, no, right. get out of here, you know? So so that that, that was very, very problematic uh, that they thought that. Uh, I want to say hi to Rich. Yes. Uh, your, and uh, to hi to my goddaughter, Taki. Thanks for, so much for, for tuning in. Uh, I've been keeping up with you, Taki. I see all the pictures you're posting and stuff. I, I haven't said anything, but I'm seeing them. Uh, and Rich, I'm so impressed with this guy swimming for an hour. Your husband here. <laughs> Swimming for, I, I am so impressed with that, you know. So that that's really impressive. If you guys got any questions, make sure you shoot them to me. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna keep on or questions and or comments. Um, so let's let's talk about what some of your biggest accomplishments. I mean, I know you spent a lot of times in in the in the DB there. Uh, so what's some of your biggest accomplishments? What, what would you say that is? I would say one of my biggest accomplishments was um, getting my master's degree when my uh, kids were uh, two and four years old. That is so I went through grad school being <laughs> pregnant, work, working at the detective bureau during the day and going to school at night while my husband watched the kids at night. Mm. You know, that, that was, to me, that was a huge accomplishment. Um, and then I, I think just being a detective of color uh, was a huge accomplishment. Cause like I said, I was the first one. Um, I think establishing relationships with all of the different agencies. Um, I mean, there's people, like I said, that's on here that know me and they always say that they enjoy listening to me and, and hearing stories. And so I guess that it's interesting to people. So I think just being, just being able to be heard and have people listen to me is an accomplishment. I think mm -hmm. it's that I've treated people fairly, um, and equitably, and you know, I think that's that's an accomplishment. I mean, I've had, you know, many, many. I, I had to testify in court. I was an expert witness. Um, I've had thousands of cases. Helped a lot of people. Um, but I, I think just being honest and and really digging for the truth and knowing that I did the best job that I could to find out the truth and help the people is my biggest accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So now you're an investigator uh, for the DCF and you schooled me before because I thought that an investigator, <laughs> so there's a difference between, a, I guess, a caseworker, social worker, DCF and, a, and an investigator. So if you could yes. enlighten, uh, well, you already lightened me, but lighten the crowd here. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so an investigator at the Department of Children and Families usually has to have at least two years um, on the job before they can apply for that position. And what they do is, so um, if anybody calls the DCF care line, that 1-800-228, whatever that number is, the um, investigators are the ones um, that respond right away to whatever the complaint is. 
um, and it's given a designation like an emergency, which is a two-hour response, or like a 24-hour response, or maybe a 72-hour response. And then we're charged with going, interviewing everybody in the home, finding out what's going on, and then making the appropriate referrals, whether it be, you know, to the drug rehab place, the hospital, um, to the police department for a criminal investigation. So you have to have very good interviewing skills, which I obviously got at the police department. But you also have to have very good people skills because just as people hate the Department of Children and Families just as much as they hate the police department. It seems like everybody loves the fire department. Our oldest son is, a, is an aspiring fireman. He's on a, a volunteer fire department right now. And everybody loves him. But uh, they don't love the police and they don't love DCF. So, uh, you know, it's hard. You really got to use your people skills. I feel like you really got to meet people where they're at. You know, I never know what the house is going to look like when I knock on a door and somebody opens a door. I have to go in there. I'm not armed. It's just me. I don't usually, we don't work in pairs. So I better figure out not only what's going on, but also in the safest way possible. Um, I have been barricaded in people's houses and stuff like that. And, and then, you know, you're, you're talking your way out of that as well. But um, it, it's a tough job. But again, I feel that I'm there to help people. And just like when I was at the police department, I'm hoping that I can help, especially the people that look like me or feel like they're not heard. And um, I know when you asked me my biggest accomplishment, we talked about this a little bit earlier, is when people say, you know, I never told anybody because it never seemed like anybody cared. Or I never told anybody because nobody believed me. Or I did tell people, but nobody believed me. You're the first person to really come and take an interest in what I have to say. And that means everything to me. And that was how I was as a patrolman. That's how I was as a detective. And that's how I am as an investigator. But that's just me. And I feel that that's given people the best job, you know, the, be the best of the job, whatever it is, whether I'm at the police department, whether I'm at the Department of Children and Families. To me, that's what the goal should be, right? That's the best. When people need help, they should be getting your best. They shouldn't be getting you when you're tired, don't want to be there, pissed off because, you know, people don't like you. People tell me to, excuse my language, fuck off every day. I go to their house, fuck you, you're not coming in. I got to talk my way and get in there. I can't just leave and say, well, they wouldn't let me in, boss. I don't know what's going on. Like, my job is to make sure that the kids are okay in there. And Captain, as the police department, I, and me being a retired police, I'm not calling the police. The police don't give a shit about assisting DCF get into a house. I'm talking my way in. That's what I'm doing. Wow. Wow. You picked, apparently, two emotionally draining jobs between being an investigator with the police department investigating sex crimes and then, obviously, what you're doing now. How do you detox? How do you relax? How do you not let all this stuff get to you? So the first thing I do when I come home is, I, I, when my kids were little, even now, I tell them, I need 15 minutes. And I, it, it's like this weird ritual that I have where I go up to my bedroom strip out of those clothes, put them in the hamper, take a shower, and then I feel like I'm mom or a wife or caring the person, you know what I'm saying? And I leave work at work. However, my husband could tell you, I have been known that if somebody call, like if somebody calls me at 10 o'clock at night, uh, like I have a state cell phone, yeah, I'm gonna answer it probably, I am. You know, cause I'm like that. I, I, they know what my hours are, 
And if it's something that they're calling me at 10 o'clock at night, it's something important to them that they feel the need to call me. Mm. Very nice. My man, Scott Stevenson's here. I haven't talked to that brother in a long time. Hi, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Leonard Dow chimed in. Uh, only could get in part-time listening to Karen and hearing her is amazing. Thank you. Uh, and Donata, your friend there, says thank you for explaining the reality of DCF. Listen, I never thought about it either, you know. Sometimes we don't think about it, you know. So, And you're right. Sometimes we're like, uh, I can remember getting calls like, oh, we got to go help DCF? Okay. <laughs> we'll put that in the back burner, let them wait for two or three hours, you know. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and so, and I don't call because I don't want to wait for two or three hours. I just know that it's bullshit to call. I'm like, why? Yeah. They're not going to do anything. I yeah. know because when I was with one, I, when I was a cop, I hated DCF too. I was like, yeah, I, yeah. they got to figure this shit out. Yeah, yeah. Why are we here? You know, okay, we'll do your job. You know, we used to make jokes. Exactly. Okay, we're going there to do DCF's job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so so uh, we're going to wrap this up here. But what what do you want to see going forward with law enforcement? I can. I'm going to ask the same thing with DCF. So, what's what do you want going forward with law enforcement? So, with law enforcement, I feel like there's a place for everything that's being asked. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity to be in the RX or the community police officer. I didn't do that um, when I was a patrolman. So, so I'm, uh, you know, but I do feel like there's a place for that. I say that um, when I was in the youth squad, I did go to schools and I did talk to to kids and sitting there with a class of 30 kids and telling them where I grew up and what schools I went to, their eyes would light up because that gave me validity, you know, because at first they're like, yeah, whatever, this lady, she don't know, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then I would name all my addresses on Walnut Street and how I went to Walsh school and how I went here um, and how I, you know, to that school. And then they, they would light up like, oh, she, she's one of us. You know what I'm saying? And how the cops were at my house chasing my brothers and stuff like that. You got you to gotta be valid or else you're not going to hold people's attention. And you have to be truthful and say what it is. Um, so I think that there's a place for everything in police, you know, in policing. I feel like there could be some kind of, I don't want to say sensitivity training, but like de-escalating training. I'll admit it. I was never trained to de-escalate anything. I was trained that you go there and you fix it. You know what I'm saying? If they don't comply, you arrest them. I mean, that's, but that's, that's way back then. I still feel there's a place for that. I feel that there are situations where, where only that, that's the only way something could be handled. But I also see now that there are people that, um, there, you know, there is room for dis, dis, de-escalation training. And I understand now that Waterbury is u- utilizing social workers to respond with them, which I didn't know. Um, and so I, I, I do like that. And I know that we were talking um, in previous podcasts about Waterbury PD is almost like the, uh, the PD to aspire to for all these other police departments because... Waterbury PD already does like 90% of the things that people are asking, you know? So I I feel that, you know, the general public should know that there's no elected people. Everybody takes a test to get in the positions that they're in. They earned it. Um, What I would charge the police department with is once you get there, you know, do good with it. Don't just sit there and say, well, you know, I'm a sergeant, I'm a captain, I'm a lieutenant, whatever, 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 you know, see what's going on and, 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 and try to do good with it. Um, 
One thing I wanted to ask you, Captain, though, is in one of our previous podcasts, somebody had said that they believe that the police target people of color. And you said as a platoon captain on, on C platoon, which is our 11 to 7 shift at night, you would look at statistics. And if all the robberies and, and shootings and stuff were in one neighborhood, that's where you would concentrate the police department's efforts. Right. Um, and if they're stopping and frisking people or stopping cars and checking for weapons and stuff like that, you know, that's what you would do. Now, you and I and probably all the other police department, maybe even the um, civilians know that most of the time those areas are occupied by people of color. So I actually wanted to throw it back on you and ask you, what is your response when people say you're you're targeting the police are targeting, you know, those neighborhoods? Yeah, so that's a good question. And I would say that I'm targeting uh, the places where the crimes are. And, and if they want to come into my office or, uh, you know, I would show them the, the information that I had. Um, I had no problem with talking to people and letting them know, um, uh, you know, what was going on. And you and the funny thing about that is, is that when you talk to people who, who, who bring that type of things up, they, they're not the ones living in the neighborhoods. Exactly. Generally, generally, right? These are people on the outside uh, because the people uh, want that type of stuff in in their neighborhood, right? And I know because I went to community meetings. I I, I went to community meetings and they would say thank you for 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 being in the neighborhood and all that kind of stuff. So they want the uh, the people who live in those communities want that type of stuff, and it and it really does keep keep the people out. Now, obviously, I wouldn't tell them to go out there and just pull over random black people or or whatever. I mean, but right. you have to have you have to have a legitimate reason uh to 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 pull them over and stop them um and once you stop them and you know if things aren't you know one and one are not making two uh then you can go through these different motions about getting people off the car and, and but i always mandated that people do things the right way constitutionally and all that kind of stuff but that's my answer listen i always targeted the, the crime the crimes uh in the area uh and that's and I, I would stand by that any statistics um in any any um surveys and datas and all that kind of stuff that that was always my answer to people so so for uh, the police department i would like to see it become um you know more diverse i would hope that more people of color would want to apply and hopefully aspire to um you know uh positions like you know lieutenant sergeant captain things like that i know that you you have something that you um try to train people or, or advise people on, you know, how to do well on promotional exams and stuff. I think all of that is important and it, it just perplexes me. I don't understand why, you know, people don't take advantage of it. You know, I, I just think of when I was a young kid getting out of high school and trying to think of, you know, what to do after I was told by my black guidance counselor when I went to seek college advice that I wasn't even worth her spending time in her office and to get out because I would probably be pregnant by the time I was a senior and, you know, get out of her office. And she told one of my fellow state workers that's a friend right now currently the same thing. We didn't even know this until I happened to be in the Waterbury office last summer talking to her about it. And she said, oh, my God, you had the same guidance counselor as me. She told me the exact same thing. Because, you know, for a minute, I thought maybe I was enhancing it. It happened a long time ago. Maybe it really wasn't that bad. But you know how when you're shocked by something, you it kind of messes with your brain. And I'm thinking, maybe she really didn't tell me that. I took it like that. And then when my friend said, no, Karen, she said the exact same thing to me. 
see stuff like that bothers me and I feel like stuff like that isn't really being talked about and I don't believe that this is the right podcast to talk about it but things like that are happening within the the the, the communities of color as well it's not just you know I don't want to make it a race war of white and black and people of color versus everybody because within our own community <laughs> there's people of color that do not want you to succeed so uh, I uh, listen, like this is the right podcast to, be, to talk about it. Okay, well you have to be, you have to be <laughs> cognizant of that. You have to be yeah. cognizant of that. It's not yeah. always just you know. It's not just you know the white man down the street or the white woman down the street. It could be people that you think are your friends that don't want you to succeed, succeed the same color as you, whatever. If you think you got an ally, not necessarily. Yeah, yeah, that's really you're right about that. Marlene had a question here. Uh, sure. uh, let's see. Uh, Detective Investigator Saruti, as a mandated reporter, I want to know uh, if I if I know a child comes to you and says I've been touched, uh, hit, etc. I know we are not supposed to ask any questions, but sometimes even after the report has been made, do we keep the extra info from the child and do we report it again? Um, are we not supposed to? Sometimes after we, I don't, I don't know if you can. Sometimes even after the report. Yes, I can't made. see it. Yeah, okay, I'm just trying okay. to understand that last part. It says, but sometimes even after re the report's been made, do we keep the extra info from the child? That's the part I don't understand. What extra info from the child? Or or do you mean do you mean Marlene after like after you made the report, you find out more information? Is that what you mean? Let's see if she says if she answers. Yeah. Hi, Teresa. All right. So in the meantime, well, well uh, Marlene is going to hopefully finish that up. Uh, so tell us what you want from DCF going forward. I mean, I know sometimes they go through some stuff where some things are missed on their part. So <laughs> so, so from D, for DCF, I, I can honestly say that we're in the midst of um, doing a lot of racial justice stuff we have for the last 10 years. Um, we have committees. I'm on them. <laughs> um, we go to meetings. We we look at statistics. So I know what you mean when you say that you look at you look at st uh, statistics as a captain of a platoon, and that's where you concentrate your efforts. In in DCF land, we look at statistics, and and I know that our families of color or our um, poorer families are the families that get called. They get reports called in on them more. Um, our, our children of color are, um, have more reports, you know, their families, our children of color come into the system more, which means that, um, they come in under, uh, a 96 hour hold or what we call an order of temporary custody because it's not our fault at DCF. It's not us doing it. It's because they don't have the strong family support system that the Caucasian family may have or the wealth that the Caucasian family might, might have. And what I mean by wealth is, in order for you to take another child in, you know, let's be real, you gotta support the child, you gotta feed the child. If the child lives in another town than you, you gotta figure out your work schedule and get that child to school. That's all your responsibility if you, if you, you know what I'm saying? Like say Johnny comes and says, Johnny's been hit. And I make a determination. Guess what? Johnny's in danger at his mom and dad's house. He cannot return there. So now I'm asking Johnny's mother and father, who do you have as family resources? Probably 90% of the time, if they're a family of color, 
either they don't have resources, their resources are out of state, which we can't really utilize right away, or their resources are not what we call suitable, which means they can't have a criminal record or if they do it, it can't be anything really serious. And there's all these like hoops and stuff that they have to jump through that the families of color just can't seem to get to that high bar. So that means that Johnny's coming into DCF care and placed in foster care. Well, you I know? want to stick a pin in that. I definitely want to talk about that in a second here. Uh, but I want to get back to Marlene's question. So to that yes. question, is, sometimes even after reports have been made, do we keep the extra info from the child? And she said yes to the whatever you said. She said yes. Okay. Um, okay. So what I think, what I think, Marlene, what I think you mean is that, like, if you find out more information after the report is made, what you do is you call the care line and you just tell them that you already made a report and you just want to um, uh, give your extra info. One of my jobs is I also did work at the care line, so I know how they do it. And what they'll do is they'll send what they call a worker message email to whoever the case is assigned to and give them that additional information. They shouldn't take a whole nother, you know, 20 minute report from you. But yes, we like to know all the information that you have. Um, so I hope that answers your question there, Marlene. Thanks for the question so much. Uh, I want to get back to this, to this, and I'm glad you actually mentioned that about, um, you know, these these communities of color uh, who are not up to the par to be meet the standards or whatever, and the kids get taken out of home and all that kind of stuff. How do we fix that? You know, we, we keep, keep trying to blame stuff on other people, and these people are doing right. this, and they're, they're holding us down, holding us back. How do we fix that? So one of, one of the things that investigators are charged with is right from the get-go, from the first visit when we meet a family, we ask right off the bat, and I try to say it in a non-threatening way, as non-threatening as possible. And I, I say, you know, in case something happens and your child has to come into care, who would you want your child to go to instead of that? And I always say, instead of like a foster home where they don't know people. And of course, now you got real, like now it's a battle. What do you mean? You're just here to take my kid. You don't even want to find out what's going on. Why are you asking me that? And I tell them it's very important because as soon as I get that information, we're starting to what we call run everybody. We're running criminal. We're looking sex offenders. We're looking DCF history, this and that. Because by the next day or so, or hopefully within that next week, if, if the mom or the dad gives me three or four people as possible resources and they're, they're not suitable that their child would be able to be placed with them, I tell them right off the bat, so-and-so can't, 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 can't. And we keep going and I keep asking for more. And a lot of um, families the, on each side, the fathers and the mothers, for some reason, they only want to go so far. There's always people, right? But they never think that they want to tell you or that that person could be interested in it. They only want to give you like the top two or three people. And once I run them, and I, I like I said, I'm open and honest with I'm like, no, that never, never. That person never placed a kid. Oh, but they used to watch them. So what people have to understand is what you do as a family you do whatever you want as a family, right? If you want to leave your kid with the sex offender down the street and we don't know about it, then that's what you do. Once we become involved, we're going to tell you, no, that's not appropriate. You cannot do that any longer. Right. So I'm talking about, um, yes, and thank you for that. But I, I was thinking more of, 
I'm probably asking too broad of a question here. How do we fix some of these families where we're not obviously not having to run into DCF in the first place, but then there, as you mentioned, there's this whole line of people that you can't go to, right? So it's not only this nuclear family right here, but now I can't put you with these cousins. I can't put you with these aunts over here. I can't put you with these uncles over here. I mean, we got to try to fix multiple families. You know, how do we, what would be your suggestion is how we can attack this from a cultural basis to where these problems aren't happening, happening. That's a very <laughs> that's yeah, a broad I know. question. <laughs> I know. So what I what I what I usually tell families in situations like that is I break it down to them and I say, listen, there is no one that is suitable um, at this time, which means that your child has to come into foster care. So the quickest way to get your child back is that you and me got to sit down and figure out what's going on so that we could fix it. So if it means you got to go to substance abuse treatment, you got to get with a mental health person and get back on your meds, even if you don't want to, it's for your child. Because once I take custody of that child, the judge orders me what to do and orders the parents what to do to, in order to get their child back. It's not, I'm taking your kid because I don't like you or because your house is dirty or whatever. I'm taking it because it, it meets a certain criteria that the child's not allowed to stay there anymore um, in that circumstance. And once I, I have to, just like as, as a police officer, we have to have probable cause. We have to have, we call it just cause in DCF land. A judge signs off on it, it's legal. And then once the child's in DCF care, the judge gives the parents what's called as well as the department of what has to happen to get the child back so that families aren't lost in the system and they say, well, I don't know, they came and took my child and I, I don't know what I have to do. I don't know who to call. You know, my child is lost in the system somewhere. Cool. Thank you so much for your wisdom and uh, for your service to the city Welcome. of Waterbury and for your service now to the state. Do people thank DCF workers for their service to the state. Do they do that? You know what? You know what? I had I had someone I had someone thank me today. Actually, I had a grandmother call me, okay. um, and tell me, uh, she said, "God bless you," <laughs> just before I left the office today because I called her and told her that I was closing her case because her grandkids were safe and her investigated and everything, and she said, "Thank you." She said, "I was so scared when you called me um, that you were going to come and take my grandkids away." Mm -hmm. um, and I said, no, I, I promised you from the beginning that if you did what I told you to do, everything would be okay. And it was. And so, yeah, people do thank me. Yeah, they do. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you. I appreciate You're welcome. that. Um, so thank you everyone to, for tuning in to Cindy, to Mike, to Marlene, Hi, Cindy. to, let me scroll up here to Teresa, to Scott. Thanks for checking in, Cindy. I got you. Marlene, Scott, Donata. Leonard, Sibonet, Rich, Taki, Sean, uh, and anyone else who I did not see, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, next week, I have uh, a pastor, a good friend of mine. We grew up together. He's from uh, Minneapolis. And so we're going to talk about what's going on oh, out wow. there. He's been feeding people and just trying to get back to normal. So we're going to have a nice discussion about what's going on out there in Minneapolis. And I guess the, their city board out there voted to defund the police and all this kind of stuff. Or so we're going to talk about all that kind of stuff. So that should be a good episode next week. So uh, tune in next week, 730. And to you guys, much love and peace. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you so much. Thank you to Detective Saruti once again. Appreciate it. Keep up the good work. And thank you for being an inspiration to me. You know, like I said before, you, people don't know who, who you're inspiring in along the way. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that, Captain. Thank you. All right. In my evening. All right. 
And your husband inspired me too because he's able to swim for an hour or just <laughs> on a rowboat. And uh, I, I, I don't know if I could do that. You know, I'd probably be like, I had to go find a rock somewhere and kind of rest for a little bit, you know? So, so anyway, so anyway, so thank you to all everyone. And I uh, will see you guys next time. Talk to you much later. Thank, thank you. you. Okay, take care everyone. Bye.